I know. And if I don't live forever, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> You're like, why do you mean a heart attack? I was 53. That is some bullshit. <laughs> be like, what studio do I have to haunt to try to get them to inadvertently make my work without them realizing it? <laughs> you get someone who's like, suddenly, I don't know. I just need to make these figurative ceramic sculptures. I just like, no, like really realistic. I do we have underglaze? I don't even know what that is, but I need some. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Oh. I'll possess someone. Don't put that past me. I, I, I'm not. Trust me, I'm not. <laughs> yeah. There's work to be done. Oh, dear. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name's Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana. You're listening to the bi-weekly podcast that explores feminist figures in the arts and sciences. Today, we're going to learn about the queen of motherfucking light. Sorry, mom. <laughs> and also, a very young, very brilliant, very bright chemist. Is she going to make me feel insecure with what I've accomplished with my life so far? Yes. Great. Awesome. For those of you wondering, uh, tune in for me on a segment in about 25 minutes to feel crappy about yourself. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it was only like one thing, but it was like one of those moments where you're like, she did it at what age? She she was awarded a Nobel Prize at what age? What? <laughs> oh, no. See, not that bad. She didn't get that far. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, glad to know I can kind of uh, lower my expectations then. <laughs> well okay my artist today is not going to make you feel insecure about yourself we are getting international today and yeah i'm doing another sculptor but she's different i swear so today's sculptor she's not neoclassical she's not even figurative and she definitely never lived in rome like all the other sculptors that i've covered this season i'm so proud of you we are spending today with an Iranian contemporary geometric glass sculptor, Munir Shirazi Farman Farmayun, aka Queen of Light, which is a nickname that I've given her. So you're welcome. Are you going to use Munir or Queen of Light this entire time? No, I'm going to use her name, Munir. I mean, I was trying to give her like a regal status, her highness. You know what? We're going to go into her family and then later who she marries, and you could kind of actually argue that. That's pretty legit. I like it. Yeah, it's not quite our Emperor Thre Theodora, who, like, was legit empress of the goddamn Byzantine Empire. <laughs> but, okay, she doesn't come close because she doesn't have anyone assassinated, as far as we know, and there were no bear trainers maimed or killed in the making of this episode. Well, that you know, know. of. You don't know what's going on, going on on my end. I like your optimism. <laughs> and I'm going to be extremely disappointed if you don't have any of that in the mix for your segment. <laughs> I think that's false advertising. I think so, too. <laughs> well, you, okay, so you could argue that there is a little bit of royalty to her because her mom was actually an Ottoman aristocrat. So there's that. What? Yeah. She was born into a well-to-do family in all the way back in 1923. Oh, cool. So, We're about in the same time frame. Yeah, so her mom legit had, like, 
royal blood. On her dad's side, he was an intellectual and a politician. So between the two of them, they were they were very well to do, very wealthy family. And Monir, she super benefited from that. And it's pretty cool because her dad, he was the first one in their city to open a school for girls. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, and I feel like there was someone you did, and it was a similar situation where I their was, father opened. Yeah, I was just about to say that I guess he was just like, I see that she is an intelligent woman, and there's not a resource for that, so I'm going to open one up. You know what? I didn't even consider that aspect of it. Uh, by all accounts, he was all about women's rights, and that might have been it. I, I didn't say exactly when he opened the school, so I don't know if it was prior to her being born. But, I mean, either way, she totally benefited from it. Uh, last episode, when you covered Sally Ride, the astronaut, like, yeah. she had a super privileged childhood, mm-hmm. and Monir definitely did as, like, as well. So, when she was about nine, uh, it was... 1932 her dad was elected to parliament and so they moved to the capital tehran so she goes from presumably the private school that her father founded in their city to tehran where she's enrolled in a pretty liberal private religious school and it's pretty neat because they're super chill with other religions and free thinkers i mean like again we're in iran in like the 1930s at this point I didn't I didn't expect that at all. Well, don't worry, because later on, we're definitely going to hit another historical point that I feel like as a whole, American history education just didn't cover any of this. There, I feel like there's, there's a lot of Middle Eastern history. Yeah. Do you remember our world history class? Um, I remember how adamant our professor or our teacher was over um, Christopher Columbus being a rapist. That was the first time I heard a teacher be like straight up honest about that. Holy shit, was that, are we, really, are we, were we in the same class? It was in the auditorium because there were so many of us. Yes, okay, see, I, that's not what I got from him at all, but I didn't even, I also wasn't paying attention. (laughs) No, he was like pretty straight up with stuff like that, with like, like I remember, other thing I remember from him too um, is him saying he expected Putin to like hit a button like at any point and just completely assume dictatorship over Russia. Oh, (laughs) You know what? That was over 10 years ago. And here we are. Still relevant. (laughs) Super relevant. Yeah, he was super straight up in a way that I feel like a lot of high school teachers just weren't with students. So that's what I recall most from him. What were you going to say? I, no, I, I mean, that's not what I took away, though, because I, one, wasn't paying attention in class at all. That's kind of what I was getting at, is that we were in an auditorium fucking around. Well, not all of us, apparently. <coughs> Dork. <coughs> hey, hey, bitch, you co-host a history podcast with me. We're in this together. <laughs> I think that's a little rich coming from you. <laughs> okay, I'm good. You, you... All right, so she's creative. Her parents see that, and they're like, great, awesome. We're going to hire you a private tutor to teach you art. Okay. Yeah, so she's like, awesome, sweet. Uh, Really loves art. After high school, she spends a semester at the Fine Art College at Tehran University, but Monir is not happy. At this point, no one's really teaching Western-style art, and the best Monir can get are these postcards of like impressionistic paintings that she can copy but she can't actually see this stuff firsthand or she doesn't even have access to textbooks about it so she's got a french professor who like really introduces her to impressionism and what the french are doing 
And Monir is like, great. I need to go to Paris to become an artist. I thought you said she didn't go to Paris. She did not go to Paris. Uh, you want to take a wager why? What What year was this again? This is the late 1930s. Uh, okay. Yeah, fucking World War II. She doesn't go to Paris because it's a shit show. She's good in Iran, guys. Yeah, so with Paris being a shit show, she ends up going to New York City instead. And this is in 1944. So she's 21. Not a bad time to be in New York. Nope. Now, things are pretty cool in New York City. Monier, she takes a few months. She works on her English. And then she takes classes at Cornell. Oh, okay. Yeah, like she jumps right into it. <laughs> like none of that community college bullshit. <laughs> I know, which is affordable, but I mean, again, think of the type of family she's coming from. Right. She has the resources to be able to do these things. So uh, she heads up Cornell, and then she enrolls at the Parsons School of Design for fashion illustration. And then later, she hits up the Art Student League, which we've mentioned a few times. That's a pretty large uh, organization that's offered non-accredited art classes for decades at this point within New York City. So she's super exposed to the galleries and the museums, all with the type of art that she just did not have access to in Iran. So so tits. Tits everywhere. Uh, yeah. Historically speaking, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with a, a very prominent feminist art group, the Gorilla Girls, one of their running gags is, do you have to be naked as a woman to get into the Met? Y you do, yes. because the majority of artwork of women in the Met is of women naked. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little depressing. And occasionally they update their stats on that, and it's even more depressing because it doesn't change that much, which sucks. So yeah, she's able to see all the artwork with the topless women, and through her American sponsor, she is able to connect to a circle of art historians and curators that become really important down the line. So throughout her life, Monir is someone who's like a great example of really utilizing networking, which I'm pretty, I'm super terrible at. You're the worst at it. I am. I'm the worst. She is not. She, it's impressive how connections she makes like in her 20s like fast forward in her 80s and she's like flexing hard on them i was like that's how you do it and i, I think part of it was growing up seeing her parents and how, probably how they worked i mean especially with her dad as a politician i'm sure to an extent like it became kind of second nature so it really is all about who you know in life so through who she knew she was introduced to the h street club and that was the cool kid artist boys club for some really big names like mark rothko and this guy called jackson pollock yeah i don't know if i ever heard of that one i know it's a little bit splattery i think so like episode 15 like we cover his wife the abstract painter lee krasner right so her and monir could totally have known one another at this point did they? I, I don't know. I didn't come across any documentation like confirming it, but they were moving in the same circles. They knew of one another. Mm, yeah. Now, 1950, Monier's 27. She gets married. She has a kid. And all of a sudden, she's living as an artist's wife. Oh, no. Her husband, Iranian painter, and the expectation is for her to play supporting wife. And I mean, that was something Lee Krasner, who we cover, she was expected to do that, too, with Jackson Pollock. She she stopped for a while, if I remember correctly. 
She did. And Monier was the same way. She kind of put things on hold, like her own interests, to support, you know, her young child and her husband and his career. Gross. Yeah. Well, she didn't like it because, I mean, she's she's immersed in the art world, but she's not considered an artist. And she said at the time, quote, I was pretty. Everyone wanted to invite me to their parties and to say, we know a strange foreign woman who came here to study art. Mm. Yeah. So she recognized that for other artists, like she was just an object of novelty and not really taken serious. But I mean, I think she's got a good laugh laugh later on. But she wanted more than that. So like three years later, she divorced her husband and was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not doing this. Good. Good for her. Like, again, like, through her connections, she knows someone who knows someone, gets her job working in a very prominent upscale department store as a fashion designer. And, like, one of her coworkers, Andy Warhol. What? Yeah. I just... Oh, God. Like, work meetings and, like, the break room. And that's what's currently going through my mind right now. (laughs) You know what? And it's funny because then... um, one of the texts I came across for her, she remarked how when she was doing these fashion layouts, she would always have him do the shoes because he did it way better. Ha! Yeah. That's insane. So after 12 years in New York City, Manier's like, I'm going home, and she moves back to Toronto. That same year, 1957, she's 34, she gets married. Uh, Guy is a U.S.-educated lawyer. And prince by birthright to the Iranian Qajar dynasty. Um, what? Yeah. So when you joked earlier about her being her highness, I mean, kind of. Okay. How many people had to die before she became queen? They weren't actively ruling. They were more of a historical dynasty that saw their, like, highlight a hundred years prior. Oh, my God. Yeah. But, like, by birthright, like, he was descended from that group of royalty. Yeah, so she gets married to an almost prince. Uh, They've got a kid. And then she takes a job from the government, essentially connecting local craftspeople to an international buyer's market. Okay. Kind of stimulate. Yeah, to kind of just meet that international demand for traditional craft work, especially like Toronto this time. It's it's a very like cosmopolitan city. I mean, some scholars argue more so than New York City at this point, but I mean, those were research papers I didn't read, so eh, I don't really know. So part of her job, she's going around looking at all this traditional craft work from metal to paper art to these miniature paintings of folklore content called coffeehouse paintings. And she's collecting them in the process. And the kind of like traditional aesthetics, Persian aesthetics, guiding them she kind of starts to like absorb with her her own work so after a few months she quits her job she unboxes all her art supplies from new york city and she's like i gotta make my own art i gotta get back on it how old is she again at this point she is in her mid-30s yes yeah and she's got two little kids you know one who's maybe a little less than 10 at this point and then one who's you know maybe only two or three years old like up to this point Meniere's art, it was like the fashion illustration, what she went to school for. But with her husband's support, she branches out and she tries some new things, one of them being monotypes. It's just the type of printmaking where instead of like cranking out copies of the same thing, you get one unique print. So with this new technique of hers, she's developing a series of abstract mono prints. They land her an award in the 1958 Venice Biennial. And that's like the top cool kid contemporary art fair, like to this date. Oh, man. 
Yeah, but I mean, think of it. She's like in her mid 30s. She's like, hey, I'm going to try something new. And before she knows it, she's getting an award for it on like one of the top international markets. That's insane. Yeah. It's like she sneezed and was like, oh, here's an award for that. Okay. Well, obviously, (laughs) it it took more work than that. But you you know what I mean? Like she didn't, I guess she was like, I'm going to. I'm going to branch out and then just try something new. And it succeeded. Yeah. Like when she was younger, she felt insecure, especially being in New York, because she was around so many of these big name artists that everyone kind of brushed her aside by default. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was kind of the case, especially with these male abstract painters with women in general. Right. But even though she was still, she wrote that she still felt insecure during this time, like the support she got from it really helped push her forward. I mean, like, no, like I'm actually an artist too, which was, that was really nice to, to read. Um, with that show, she got, you know, the support recognition that really helped her. And fast forward a few years, she's 40 years old and she has her first solo show at the Tehran University. What? (laughs) Hearing that made me think of all the people who are like, no, I'm too old to try something new. I'd be like, no, go for it. There's nothing stopping you but yourself. But you think even with her solo show, like, that could be a really big creative turning point? It was not. What? Yeah, so her biggest creative impact came when Monir walked into a mosque and she started crying. And that's what launched, like, her international art career. What? Yeah, this is when the whole Queen of Light thing comes into play. What? I know you were going to have questions, and I'm going to answer them. So, Monir, you know, very socially outgoing, hosted parties all the time, had people over. She had friends from New York City come visit in Tehran, one of them being Andy Warhol. Oh, Okay. Apparently, he was just very quiet a lot of the time at the parties that she would hold. (laughs) No surprise there. No. (laughs) But on one of those visits, she had two artist friends come over, and they went and visited a local mosque and mausoleum, which you're like, that doesn't sound like a place to take some friends from out of town. Actually, I mean, with the architecture and the... Yeah, but like the mausoleum part of it. I don't know what mausoleums in Iran look like. Okay, this one is, it is insane. I figured. Yeah. It, it is the Shirah, Shirah Shrine, which translates to King of Light. Oh. It, it's insane. It's insane. You guys have to go Google it. So there's a documentary on Amazon about Monir. It's just, it's titled Monir. And if you have Prime, it's totally free if you subscribe to the channel uh, for a trial. And one of the opening shots of the film is of them as they enter this shrine. And every surface is covered in mirrors. Oh. Like everything but the floor. Like these intricately cut, geometrically patterned mirror mosaics over everything. The ceilings, the walls. The shrine is its amazing and it's awe-inspiring and it's a holy site for Muslim worshippers. And when Monir and her friends visited in the early 60s, she walked in and she said afterwards, she's like, I was crying. She described it as, quote, imagine stopping inside the center of a diamond and staring at the sun. Oh, wow. The pictures are insane because the way the light reflects off of all the surfaces, it's just this like glittering gem that you've walked into just as you described it. You should totally Google like right now. It's so shiny. Political relations right now are a little fraught between America and Iran, but, you know, if we could get tourist visas at some point, it would be crazy to go there. Like, I was reading about it in a few articles about her, and I was like, yeah, okay, like, I I can imagine something like that. And then I saw an actual video clip, and I was like, whoa, that is not what I had in mind. That is ten times more awesome. It's just so visually overstimulating because there's just all these different surfaces, and they're covered in such 
finely cut patterns that just reflect the light at different angles and, and different like, colors. And I like, was, yeah, I was expecting like oh just goodness. one color. No, this is like every color you can think of. Yeah, there's like blue accents and greens kind of thrown in there. It's, it's pretty crazy. And after that, her artwork completely changed. Like, Muneer started working on these abstract geometric pattern glass pieces that she's, that's what she's most well known for today. And just like that shrine is completely over the top in the size of it and also like the decorative surfaces, that's how Munir made her art too. So they're large, they're heavy, they're very labor intensive. And because of that, she set up a workshop. Like in Renaissance art where one artist would kind of design everything and then would have contract out labor, that's what Munir did too. So she would plan her designs. She partnered with a master glass craftsman to execute them. And like the type of glasswork in that mosque that she visited like for centuries specialty glass had been shipped in from europe and it would often break in the process and so what uniquely developed you would get these craftsmen that would capitalize on that and so that's why they would cut the glass into such small precise pieces because these larger pieces of glass just couldn't withhold couldn't stand up to that shipping process right so she's able to tap in on that skill set and she bridges it in a contemporary content, which is pretty awesome. So Monir described in her memoir how she gave Ostad, her craftsman, like her abstract drawings. And then she'd ask for, you know, a certain amount of individual pieces to be cut. And then working with him, they would assemble these work with a specialty glass that was half as thin as the thinnest stuff you can get in America at the time. I'm looking through her work now. Like, how? I want to know how long these took. Like, these in particular, these 3D mounds of hers. Yeah, in her later years, she kind of branched out from doing two-dimensional stuff to 3D. And she worked with a team of at least 10 craftsmen later on just to help with the cutting the glass and then also assembling it, too, and then making those 3D structures to build on. So it's an example where she just would not have been able to craft these pieces if it had just been her in her studio by herself. Like, you need that kind of production quality to execute them. Look at how tiny know, these shards are. Okay, sorry. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's her work is really – it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And people loved it. I mean, at this point in the 70s, it was a really good period for Monier. So she's in her late 40s, early 50s. She's making this abstract glass work. She's traveling occasionally between Tehran and New York City. I mean, her oldest daughter at this point had moved there. And people love her work. It's very multifaceted. <laughs> oh, my God. Get out. I know, I know, I know you're going to be disappointed in me. I couldn't help it. I couldn't help help it. Okay. Okay, puns aside. Her work is so cool because it, like, packs a lot of content into each piece in a really effortless way. So we've got the straight-up mathematical aspect of it, right? And then there's, like, this additional layer of these forms referencing, like, Islamic architectural elements. And then there's another layer on top of that of Sufism, which is a mystical form of Islam, kind of akin to how Kabbalah is to Judaism. Okay. And so, like, that loads every form, like the triangle and the hexagon, with spiritual meaning. Mm, okay. So, for Munir, she said, quote, For me, everything connects with the hexagon. The hexagon has the most potential for three-dimensional sculpture and architectural forms. So, as Munir is developing her art, like, she she moves, like I said, from paintings to making sculptures. Or, when I say paintings, I just mean, like, flat two-dimensional work. It's pretty wild, because, like, during this period, like, through her family, who they know, she lands her first United States solo show in New York City. That's so exciting! Yeah, it was, like... Her brother-in-law, who happened to know David Rockefeller, who happened to know a curator at MoMA, who happened to know 
a gallerist who would put on a show for her. What? I mean, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and then at her show, she meets another gallerist, uh, Denise Renee, who was like, yeah, I'll show your work here in the United States and Paris, too. And so that was a relationship that lasted for decades. And that really helped launch international interest in its sales. What? And Monier's art. How do you? I mean, it's depressing because you want to be like, no, like, it's not about who you know. No, it's about who you know. Oh. I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure no one I know knows of any of the Rockefellers. Yeah, so I'm screwed. We're screwed, Milena. Sorry. Oh, oh no. <laughs> yeah. So, like, things are going good, right? Christmas of 1978, Monia and her husband, they're in New York City. So her oldest daughter's living there. She's married. Their youngest is in college up in Vermont. The family's together for the holidays. And that January, while they're in New York City, the Iranian Revolution breaks out. Oh, goody. I think we can safely add that to the list of shit they didn't teach you in American public schools. No. Yeah, I don't I don't remember anything if they ever touched on it at all. Basically, people were unhappy with the ruling monarchs and they were pushing westernization with a pretty heavy hand. So Iran flipped from an author- authoritarian regime to a religious authoritarian regime. And that's the best way I can summarize it in one sentence. I don't need to know anymore. I can do an entire episode just on that, but we're moving on. So essentially that left Monir and her husband fucked. Right. They were supporters of the overthrown monarchy. They lost everything. Oh, no. Everything back in Iran. Their home, her husband had a few businesses, all of her artwork. <gasps> everything was either confiscated or destroyed. Oh, no. Yeah, so suddenly Monir and her husband, they're refugees in America. Oh. They settled into life. It was hard, but like they had both been educated in the United States to an extent, and they both spoke English, and they both had a network of supporters there, so it could have been worse. Yeah. But it was still really hard, because like they didn't know when or if they'd be able to return back to their home country. I mean, can you imagine being like, when am I going to see the rest of my family? I mean, just this quarantine alone. Yeah, like... we're kind of going through that a little bit. <laughs> But it's nothing like that. No, no. This is on a totally different level. Eventually, Meniere kind of started working on her art again. But there are were, there were some barriers here in the United States. So, I mean, like I mentioned, the glass wasn't the same quality as in Iran. So Meniere had to work around that. And then there's a lack of skilled craftspeople to execute her designs. Like at one point, Meniere, she was kind of lamenting the hours that an architectural firm had to spend doing computer calculations for one of her works. Oh, shit. Yeah, like before she would like, she had that master craftsman that she would show her designs. They worked together and be like, all right, let's do this. And so it was just, it was a completely different approach here that she, she had to work around. And because of that, she had to kind of switch up materials and she had to simplify her designs. Like if she wanted to see something finished. Right. So up until the early 90s, when you're, she was taking commissions, but she was pretty open in that. She was like, I was just doing it for the money. Like, I needed to support my family. So she wasn't actively showing her work. And in 1991, her husband died. Oh, no. So, yeah, it did It did hit her pretty hard. And for about over a year afterwards, Monia was making these collage pieces about their life together. And in the, the documentary about her, you know, the camera kind of pans over slowly some of the pieces that she would assemble photographs and text. And I had to pause at one point because I was like, is that fucking Trump organization seal on one of her collages? Oh, no. It was. Oh, no. Damn it. This is like over 20 years in the past and he's still ruining things for me. What? What? It's like, damn it, Trump. 
Wait, I'm so confused right now. So I think at some point she had just gotten a piece of documentation from the Trump organization. And so she had collaged their um, header on one of her pieces. Oh, no. Yeah. She's, tell me she's, she's not alive to see what happened. I mean, she didn't see what's currently happening. She unfortunately got to see the shit show that was the 2016 American election. No. Yeah. Yeah. But she did pull through her grief. I mean, not to say that it didn't leave her. In the mid-90s, she was like, I'm going back to Iran. Good. Yeah. It it took a little bit to make that happen. By a little bit, I mean like a decade. But in 2005, she's permanently back in Iran, back in Tehran. And Things are different, you know, politics, Mm. economy, the society, Mm. but not the quality of the glass or the workers. So she sets up her studio and she focuses on nothing but her art and she starts cranking it out. So this is primarily a period that the documentary on Amazon focuses on. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's cool to see her like in her studio and to see her working because a lot of the artists I do have been dead for a few decades now. And you you just you don't get that. No. Uh, So Meniere, she's cranking out art. She's got a team of people helping her make it. Compared to the 70s, her work is a lot more complex. Mm -hmm. And that work was already fairly complex to begin with. And she's getting these commissions from museums across the world. Yes. And unlike the commissions in New York City, like, she's doing them for the art first. So basically, Monier's in her 80s, and she's killing it. Yes. Yeah. Okay, she's killing it so hard that in 2017, the place where she had her very first solo show in Tehran at the university, they opened a museum just for her. That is so cool. Yeah. It's called the Monier Museum, and it was the first solo artist museum in Iran to open. I'm okay. This was really nice because, like, there's been a handful of people that I've done that don't really see the proper recognition in their lifetime. Right. Monir gets it. Good. Fuck yeah. Yeah, and she is she is very forward about it, which I love. Now that the type of glasswork that inspired her art, she described as quote part of artistic creations that do not only belong to museums or the rich. You can find them everywhere, and they are part of our living artistic experience, and they have an ancient history behind them. So, like, even though her own work is in her own museum, she's built on that shared cultural artistic experience that she described with her own art. And I think it must have been really satisfying for her to see that manifest. I mean, she went from feeling like an imposter in her 20s to having a goddamn show at the Guggenheim 60 years later. So one quote I found that was really sweet was from O'Neill's grandson, and he put it, quote, she arrives at higher math through pure aesthetics. Meditating on her work is like taking a shortcut to infinity. Oh. I thought it was really beautiful. He so loved his grandma. Is... And it really concisely sums up her work. So she passed away last year in 2019. She was 97. Damn. Yeah. And that just kind of furthers my totally unscientific theory that women artists live forever. Forever and ever. Yeah, but I think when you spend years raising a family, you kind of got to make up for it somehow. So it all balances out. So that is Monir Shroud Farman Farmayan. You're going to outlive me, Megan. We'll see. Your grandma, she lived forever. She held on. She was an artist. She was. Yes. I was just thinking in general. But I mean, hey, you never know. (laughs) You can't die early on me and be like, oops, I guess I can't go to space with you. (laughs) 
Okay, no, real talk. How shitty of a best friend am I when I'm like, you can't die first. I have to die first. You can't burden me with that grief. No. I mean, we'll deal with this down the line, but it's like, I'm a little selfish. I want to die first. (laughs) You want to deal with that. (laughs) Yeah. You can't burden me with your death. Do you know how inconsiderate that would be, Milena? I, look, all I'm saying is that you're the artist in this situation. You know, my, uh, my lady didn't live forever, so that furthers your, uh... I like your, like, I raised your person who lived to 97 with someone who dies in their 30s. <laughs> what type of weird betting are we doing here? That's that's a weird segue, but I think you're gonna... I mean, d- did she die in her 30s? Uh... <laughs> Again, you leave it open to interpretation, like... <laughs> Was she a chemist? Was she not? Did she die in her 30s? Did she not? Are there bear trainers in this episode that are going to be killed? I don't know. Let's find out. So I'm going to tell you a short story about a chemist. I feel like a short story for a chemist does not end well. Like, are there explosions (laughs) at all? No. Okay. There are, there's a leprosy, chalmugra plant oil, tuberculosis. And at least good old-fashioned sexism. But honestly, if I'm being honest, there was probably a little racism thrown in as well because she was black in America in the early 1900s. I mean, shit, to be black now. Yeah. Like. It happens. I feel like by default, anytime we're covering someone in America, it's sexism and racism might be the default. And I'm also going to just geek out a little bit about microbiology and biochemistry. Just a little bit in there. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun ride. I'm going to take you to Seattle, where Alice Augusta Ball was born. Uh, Seattle, Washington, on July 24th, 1892. Her parents, James Presley and Laura Louise, were two prominent figures in their community. Both were photographers. Her father, being a photographer, was also the editor of the uh, Colored Citizen, which was a newspaper at the time, and was also a lawyer. Her grandfather was also a prominent photographer and an abolitionist who did portrait work via daguerreotypes, which is just the process of developing photographs onto metal rather than paper. Oh, man. Talk about old school. I know. Cool. So cool. So Alice was one of four children. Her brother's names were William and Robert, and her sister's name was Addie. So if you're playing the imaginary drinking game, I wish our podcast had. Take a double shot because we not only know all of her immediate family members' names, but we also know her grandfather's name. That is pretty cool. I um, and pretty much everything I came across, they only mentioned Munir as an only child, and then there was one text that was like, "Oh, hey, by the way, she had a brother," and I was like, "What? I don't know who to trust." <laughs> I feel so lied to. I did. I really did. And like I said, like I go for the hardcore scholarly, scholarly like sources and I was like, y'all lying to me. So that's pretty cool that not only do you have the names of her siblings, but also her grandpa too. That's good. I even, okay, so here's a, here's a fun family fact. African-American family, but they were prominent and both mom and dad were listed on her, on Alice's birth certificate as white so that she could pass a little easier. It's messed up that they had to do it, but I think that also speaks to their political sway that they were able to get to do that. 
the person who was documenting it to agree to it. Right, 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 right. I mean, like, yeah, so overall was prejudice was a thing, but, like, her family was not in the worst spot. So she grew up in Seattle. There were two years when she was young that she spent in Hawaii because they moved there for, like, warmth for grandpa's arthritis. Um, oh, that's so badass. I know, I like right? <laughs> but, like, a year later he passed away and they were like, well, grandpa's not here. We're going to go back to Seattle. <laughs> uh, Yeah, I know. I shouldn't laugh. I'm like, that sucks. <laughs> but like, oh, Grandpa died and now we have to leave Hawaii. Like, <laughs> no. 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 Oh, that's a shitty reason to leave somewhere, but here we are. <laughs> they moved back to Seattle. She graduated high school there in 1910 and then moved on to Washington State where she got a bachelor's degree in pharmaceutical chemistry. And... As an undergrad, she co-wrote an article in the Journal of the American Chemical Society with her professor titled Benzoylations in Ether Solution, which just rolls off the tongue. In, ca- in case you were wondering, it's, it's two sentences, okay? Benzoylation is the introduction of a benzoyl group into a molecule, and a benzoyl group is a functional group, which just means that you can, like, predict the kind of reaction something's going to have because the okay. each functional group has like a specific reaction to specific like things that they're the mixed with and stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you can kind of be like, "Oh, that's going to explode." <laughs> I don't I don't actually know if benzoyl explodes. I don't think benzoyl explodes. You don't I feel like it's a safe bet with chemistry to have that as a default setting. <laughs> it I don't think it explodes though. <laughs> I have to go back to my chemistry. <laughs> Uh, The big takeaway here is that a woman of color in the early 1900s was published nationally for her work in science, and she only had a bachelor's degree. Is this the part where we're supposed to feel bad about what we've accomplished with our life, or is there more? No, there's a little more. Oh, okay, lovely, great. (laughs) When I was in college, I finally figured out how to make the perfect stovetop rice, and that was a big accomplishment. I sometimes still burn rice. But not you know purposely. Yeah, so your brother does it on purpose, and yeah. then he calls it. Pega. It's a, it's a family household thing. But I don't even do that. I just burn it. Uh, <laughs> all right. So what else is your girl doing outside of being an undergraduate in a national published scientific <laughs> well, she, article? She obviously graduated, and then afterwards she got a lot of scholarship offers to continue her education and go to grad school. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. So she, I mean, she had one that went to like California, Seattle, whatever, but she decided to go to the University of Hawaii for a master's degree in chemistry. Her thesis. She's like, Grandpa, I'm doing it for you. I know, right? <laughs> Her thesis focused on the kava plant chemical properties. So, kava plants are plants that are found mainly in Pacific areas like Hawaii. Their roots were used by non-Westernized cultures for me- like medicinal purposes, religious purposes, political, social, the whole deal. It was okay. basically integrated into these societies. And the consumption of these plant mm-hmm. roots have euphoric effects. Of course, when Europeans started trancing around, this was something that was deemed by the Christian and Western world as like unclean. And it was often banned because of how strong the kava plant was tied to this culture that the Christian society refused to understand or tolerate. Oh, you know the higher-ups were doing it, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Which which brings me to my next point. Kava plants have compounds called cavalactone. It's a specific kind of lactone, and they are what makes the euphoric stuff happen, essentially, even the medicinal purposes. So not just when you're feeling like you want like a spiritual commune, but also when you need medicine. Because kava plants are used in pharmaceuticals, like like modern day medicine. 
Okay, cool. Yeah. So, you know, you can't do it, but we're going to use it for our medicine and then hike up the price. <sighs> yeah. Yep. So she was all up in that plant life and how plants can be used to create uh, modern medicine. And I have a strong feeling she would have liked or did like weed. I did not come across any of that, but <laughs> just throwing that out there. Anyway, with her work on the kava plant, she was uh, starting to understand and get familiar with plant life in general on the chemical level. Okay. Because of this work, she was contacted by a Dr. Harry T. Holman at Kalihi Hospital in Hawaii. And he had a huge problem, Megan. What was that huge problem? Yes. Uh, he needed something to help his patients calm the fuck down. Uh, n- no. Actually, that's a good guess, though. No, his his problem was leprosy. Oh, that was that was so close to being my number one answer. <laughs> was it really? Or okay, you lying I'm to gonna me? say we we've been doing this podcast for a little bit now. We have <laughs> never come across leprosy. Nope. Like for me, that's something in a Princess Mononoke movie. Okay. Yes. That's was going to be my next point, because do you want to learn about leprosy? Because nobody really knows about leprosy. They don't even know it's still a thing. It's gross, and all your bits start falling off, and everyone goes, ew, you got to live with other people with it, and that's how we got leprosy colonies, and that's all I can tell you. So, yes, that's why I wanted to bring it out, because people don't even realize it's still a thing. It is, because in 2018... There were over 200,000 new cases of leprosy worldwide. Okay, ew. Is is it something like more attributed to certain climates? It- no. Okay. So, okay. are you ready for is it some... Like ba- what? Is it bacterial? Like, I don't... Are you ready for some horrifying medical facts? Oh, you you look so excited. Um. Okay. All right. Share it with us. Okay. We're listening. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was so excited researching this. It's not even funny. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It gets its name from the Greek word lepra, which means scale. It's been around since as early as 600 BC, and there are thoughts of it originating in the northern African regions, right? So it is mostly transmitted through prolonged contact with people who already have it, and the person who contracts it needs to have a specific gene variance than what we would call the normal population, you know? And this gene variance is actually connected with the same area of DNA that allows the progression of Parkinson's. Okay, that's some super shitty luck. So, not only genetically are you prone to getting Parkinson's, but that same gene makes you susceptible to leprosy? Yep. Okay, can you still get leprosy even if you're not, if you don't have that gene variation? Uh, it's very rare, Like, you could still get it, but it's more likely if you have that variant. That is so crazy. How are we not all dead? (laughs) Wait for it. (laughs) It's... Oh, my God. (laughs) So it's also prevalent. (laughs) I'm okay. (laughs) It's also prevalent in impoverished communities, but... Leprosy has also been found in red squirrels and armadillos, and there have been some cases of people getting it from animals, making it what we in the business like to call a zoonotic disease. So, like, you can get it from other animals, like rabies and leptospirosis, minus the rabid raccoon biting or accidentally ingesting rat urine. I just, I have so many questions. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Talk about a shitty stroke of luck. (laughs) 
of like let's say you're already prone to getting parkinson's and then also like your family's really poor and you have to live in these pretty like not great conditions where you might be exposed to red squirrel piss is that what you said no 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 red squirrels could have leprosy i just, just... red squirrels in general so yeah. i was i was i was comparing it to because zoonotic diseases those were the other two that stand out as zoonotic diseases rabies and lepto they're not at all related to uh leprosy but i was trying to explain what a zoonotic disease was yeah yeah, yeah. so we move on there's more it is also known as Hansen's disease, named after Norwegian physician Gerhard Amar Hansen. I don't, there's no quiz, so you don't have to know that name. It is caused by one of two bacteria finding their way through your respiratory tract. So, these bacteria... <sighs> Something. What? We're a little worried about that right now, collectively, as a planet. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, these bacteria have really long scientific names. I'm not going to tell you them. However, they actually share the same genus as the bacteria that causes tuberculosis. But the symptoms and development time are mad different. It's like a super shitty double feature. It's great. It's great. I mean, it's not great for the people getting it. But medically, anyway, yeah. fascinating. Side note, if you don't know what the hell a genus is, go check out episode one. What are you doing? Yeah, with your Mary Anning. You remember now? I do. Okay, I do. <laughs> and your dinosaurs. Although, don't ask me what dinosaur exactly because it's a long neck or a short neck. I don't quite there, remember. Yeah, so there, there was, was debate about that. Like, like one that looks like a dolphin called an ichthyosaurus yeah. and then one they they actually she she picked she found the long neck one which was of the plesiosaurus i said it right plesiosaurus this time bringing it back people <laughs> <laughs> i'm okay go listen to our very first baby episode with oh, our baby audio setup great but this million is where it gets really interesting because you can start to show symptoms one to 20 years after exposure. Okay, that's some bullshit. Okay, like, okay, is it something kind of like shingles where you it might develop later on because let's say you're really stressed and you've gotten older and your immune system is a little bit more compromised and so it's like, hey, guess what? I've been here the entire time. I think I maybe I haven't really like I didn't come across anything like, but like if you're immunologically compromised then yeah. That's so crazy. Because okay. it's not able to fight off the bacteria that's just been hanging out. Hanging but it's out. so wild that it'll just remain so dormant for all those years. I Yeah, when I read that, I was like, I audibly was like, what? It was bad. So symptoms, ready? They include, but are not limited to, runny nose, skin lesions all over your body. I mean, all over them. It's bad. Poor eyesight, impotence. Nerve damage and loss of the ability to feel pain, which leads to secondary infections of unnoticed wounds and the loss of limbs. Or your body could just go the loss of cartilage route, resulting in shortened and deformed extremities as well as a flattened nose. That is terrifying. Yes, that's all from one disease. How, and once it manifests, like, how quickly will it progress? Tell me, doctor. Oh, <laughs> it depends on the bacteria. Okay, because I might have had a runny nose the other day, and I don't know, is that leprosy? Was that the sriracha <laughs> on my pasta? I was don't know. COVID? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, because, like, one, uh, from what I read, one bacteria causes, like, 
a lighter version and then like once it progresses it it gets bad because suddenly you start to have nerve damage and then there's all this like secondary infection happening and then you have like a billion things going on and you look a little bit like a lizard and it's really sad <laughs> and it's not anything yeah, but like i just imagine being in the doctor's office and you're just sitting there, like, taking in the news and being like, I have leprosy. But the doctor's being like, yeah, yeah, but you have, like, leprosy light. <laughs> and be like, I, I still have leprosy? Be like, yeah, 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 but, like, leprosy light. Like, L-I-T-E. <laughs> eh? Eh? <laughs> Um, I, we, there's a, there's a treatment now, so hopefully you can, like, get to that before it's the case, but there are communities still worldwide that don't have that access. Um, even with, uh, I think the World Health Organization is, like, they have, like, a program where they, they administer treatments now, but it's (laughs) no longer sponsored by the United States of America. (laughs) But you know what we did historically with people who had leprosy, Megan? Uh, put them in colonies far away from everyone, like the same people who had TB. Yep. We shoved them into these poverty-ridden, isolated spaces and told them to figure their own shit out. Which, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, makes me reflect on the genetic component. If you have leprosy and you're hanging out in a colony with a bunch of people who have leprosy and you make a baby then they're more likely to have that particular genetic variance. Oh, that's a weird offshoot or consequence of that type of setting. Okay. Yeah, that's no fun. I don't, I can't Uh, tell you whether, I I assume it's recessive, um, but you never know. So does that mean for areas that were already prone to it, it's only been perpetuated through... I mean, they, I mean, and the, I mean, think about the communities that they're in. Like, if they, thankfully, you can't really, from what I understand, what I read, you can't really, if you have leprosy and you're the mom, the baby doesn't get it. But, like, if the baby okay. has prolonged exposure to its mother who has leprosy and you're in a poverty ridden area, like, it just, the chances. Yeah, yeah, all yeah. those things compound. Yeah. But this brings us back to Alice because in the 1300s, Chalmugra oil? I really don't know if I'm saying this right. It's you from the... just say it confidently. That's all that matters. <laughs> it's from the Chalmugra plant, and it was used medicinally to help treat leprosy. But it was a nightmare. It wasn't effective enough. And it wasn't effective because you couldn't reliably administer it. People couldn't eat it because it would just make them, like, immediately throw up. Like, it was not ingestible. Ugh. Yeah. They couldn't use yeah. it topically. It was so viscous. It would just get on everything you didn't want it on. And then they tried to inject it in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it would just bubble up under the skin. Uh, but Oh, like, my God. My face right now. Yeah, I can't, I can't see your face right now. It might work, look, like work locally around the bubbles, like the patches around the bubbles, because the, the bubbles would come out like... Somebody somebody compared it to bubble wrap because it was so uniform. Ew. Uh-huh. Okay. That's not how I want my flesh described. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was super painful and they were filled with that oil and it was a disaster. And also leprosy in Hawaii was mad stigmatized. So they threw all the people affected with leprosy on their own leper island, which was called Molokai. Molokai? So Dr. Holman was like, yo, can you help me figure this out? And Alice was like, yeah, I got you, boo. So without getting too much into the science, 
Although I literally found an article by chemistryworld.com that went into the specifics. I'm sure you did. I love you so much. <laughs> and we can we can do that as an add-on Patreon episode. <laughs> and you and like 15 other people can just go hard on it. <laughs> she basically separated the part of the oil that made it oil from the part of it that had medicinal values. And then she threw those medicinal compounds into a solvent that was easier to absorb by the human body. Some coconut oil and a little bit of that mixed in. (laughs) Shit, that'll fix anything. This was at the age of 23. God damn it. All right, we're back to feeling shitty about ourselves. (laughs) We were doing so well. We, we, yes, we were doing so well. Aside from the now constant fear I'll have to worry about, Will I ever develop leprosy? 20 years down the road. Yeah. So we now use sulfonamide treatments for leprosy, which is an antibacterial. But hers was the preferred method for decades and allowed people affected with the disease a little bit of hope. That was really important because it really was just sticking this oil on them for centuries and hoping it worked. Now, would it just halt the progression? Yeah. So it... She okay. injected it into the body. So it was like like it was absorbed into the body and started working systematically instead of locally. Because like it okay. say like lidocaine, that's like a local anesthetic. You can just put it around and it's there. But like the yeah. way that she had created it, it was now working throughout the whole body rather than just yes. a section. So at the age of twenty-four, she fell ill and died. Oh, no. Yep. What happened? This was before her ability to publish and to administer this treatment. She had to go back back to Seattle um, when she was ill, and there was a bunch of confusion about what did it. Um, People thought it was due to chlorine poisoning from prolonged exposure while teaching in the lab. She was giving a how to use a gas mask uh, lecture in preparation for World War I. But things got weird because her original death certificate was altered to say tuberculosis instead. So no one knows the real reason. Mm. We're we're blaming tuberculosis. I know, I know. (laughs) Another episode sponsored by TB. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Holy moly, though. Like, and what what year was that? Uh, she was 24, so, yeah, 19, 1916. She was so young. I know. And she only got to really see one, like, recognition of her work, which is awful. Because, Megan, there was this unpublished, administrable treatment for leprosy. At the University of Mm -hmm. Hawaii, with a recently deceased creator of the said treatment just ripe for the taking. And what do the academics at the University of Hawaii do, Megan? They publish it and fully credited her work posthumously. Nope. Oh, fucking hell. They had one job. Okay. One of Alice's higher up, like Professor Arthur L. Dean, who will later be the president of the University of Hawaii, takes her work branches off of it, slaps his name on it, and takes all the credit. It was scrutinized by chemists later. His work that branched off of hers wasn't finding anything revolutionary beyond what Alice had already found. Was there later acknowledgement of that happening within the scientific community? Yes. Okay, good. That's something. By then he'd probably, 
he'd probably already benefited by then. Right. Her name was forgotten for a while. He had published something in the 20s briefly mentioning Alice. I think he just referred to the treatment as the, quote, ball method, but not really getting into why it was called that. People were still thinking that he did all the work. And it wasn't until the 70s that two professors at the University of Hawaii scoured the archives and found her original work. Uh. And in 2000, the university finally, like, put a plaque up about her on the campus with a, with a Chalamuga tree. In 2000. And almost, almost 80 years later. 80 okay. years later. There's an Alice Ball Day celebrated every four years. I have no idea why they chose every four years. There's a park in That's Seattle weird. named after her. There was a short film made about her that actually premiered in February. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine just added her name along with Florence Nightingale and Marie Curie onto the main building because it has a bunch of other scientist names, but those are the only, like, women on the building. And that was yeah. done September of last year. But there was 80 years, like, silence. 80 years of silence. Yeah. I mean, that's all I have written about her. But, like, what? I'm okay. I'm not angry. It's... For as shitty as it is, at least acknowledgement within the scientific community of the intellectual theft that occurred. Yes. That's super important. That's a big step. And it's shitty that it's come decades after the fact, but it was acknowledged. It was recognized. I just have, she would have done, she did some amazing things, but I just, I'm so sad that 24, Megan. I know. Can you imagine if she, even if she only had like another 10 years or so, like everything she would have been able to do on top of that, that that's that's hard. There are still a few artists that I think about that we've covered that I'm like, what if things had been a different like what how much more could they, could they have done? And I feel like Alice is someone on your end that definitely falls into that category. of You'll never know. It's always a game of what if. Yeah. And, like, it took me this long to do her because, like, I didn't get a lot of information from her because, again, she was only alive for 24 years. So, like, there wasn't much – it was a story to tell, but it wasn't, like, long enough to make, like, a a 20-minute segment on my my end. But, like, at the same time, like, I think it's worth knowing her name. And especially with the the whitewashing within history. I mean, that that can be another component of it, of some of the people we've covered. It's hard to find solid documentation because historically at the time people were like, ah, whatever, like – Sorry, you're not a white man. You're not worth writing down. So that can further kind of make things harder. But Well, gee, I'm glad we can end on a happy note today. Yay! All right. Well, as always, if you guys have made it this far, you're really awesome and we super appreciate it. And if you want to show some appreciation, uh, we have that PayPal donation button right on our website. Anything helps. It really does. But Milan, if people want to learn more about the people we've covered and see some of the images of my person who lived to be almost 100 and yours who was just barely drinking age, where can they go? We have a website, myfavoritefeminist.com. Our Instagram and Facebook are under My Favorite Feminist. Our Twitter is at Milena Megan. That's at M-I-L-E-N-A-M-E-G-A-N. Uh, you can listen to us on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn. And if you feel so inclined, it takes two seconds to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Let us know in the comment section below. Let us know where you were going to go before everything went to shit. We want to hear about our next year's vacation because we're just going to do it next year, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Yo, I've written off everything for like the next 18 months. I I I think actually I was supposed to go to Germany this fall. Yeah, there was talk of doing another family trip down to Colombia. Yeah, not anymore. 
I've been looking at some very lovely uh, screensavers. Spain, Greece. It's almost like I'm there. (laughs) One day. One day. One day. Oh, well. But until that day, we'll see you next time, guys. Bye. testing my audio earlier i was like testing 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 today's episode brought to you by virginia heat forecasting 100 percent boob sweat <laughs> and it's true. it's true it's true for everyone <laughs>